the best, 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 best of Cresta in the Afternoon countdown. Number 28. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Mark Twain, Samuel Langhorne Clemens, born 1835, died uh, 1910. Uh, arguably America's uh, favorite uh, writer, humorist. Um, he, I'm always amazed looking at the span of his life because you know he's born around the time of the Mexican-American War. You've got the Civil War, of course, uh, when he's. Um, uh, just uh, in his 20s. And then he ha- he lives through that period of time in which there's uh, really where, where the scientific enterprise is getting special uh, attention and you have the conflicts arising over Darwin's Origin of Species, which was published in 1859. You have the rise of, in America anyways, of uh, uh, universities, which we call secular universities. Uh, America was going westward uh, it was there was the, the the time when great wealth was being accomplished through the oil industry and the railroads and uh, Mark Twain living through that uh, and it's often good to point out that he he lived almost up to the time of the uh, first world war he's a, he's this unusual uh, just a very engaging guy and atheists have taken him and used him polemically against the Christian faith. But to just call him an outright atheist uh, doesn't do justice to the complexity of his thought when it comes to spiritual things. Uh, My guest, Dr. Gary Scott Smith, uh, is the author of Mark Twain, Preacher, Prophet, and Social Philosopher. And uh, Gary's been with us many times before, talking about the faith of uh, U.S. presidents uh, he taught at Grove City College from 1978 to 2017 and chaired the history department there and coordinated the Humanities Corps. He received Grove City's uh, inaugural Professor of the Year Award in 2000. And the next year, he was named Pennsylvania Professor of the Year by the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching and the Council of Advancement and Support of Education. Uh, his books that we've discussed on this program have been Religion in the Oval Office, uh, Duty and Destiny, The Life and Faith of Winston Churchill, and uh, he has a book coming out this fall on the life and faith of Jackie Robinson, I believe. Gary, it's good to have you back here. Thanks. Thanks, Al. My pleasure. Well, let's talk about uh, Mark Twain, Samuel Clemens. Uh, tell me a little bit about his uh, upbringing, the kind of home he was born into, relationship with siblings, that kind of thing. Well, he spent most of his uh, childhood in Hannibal, Missouri, which was a fairly small town when he was born. But by the time he left in his late teens, it was the second largest city in Missouri. Uh, He was part of a family of seven children, uh, kind of right in the middle of the the children. But he had three uh, siblings who died young. Mm. And then he had a younger brother who was killed in a steamboat explosion accident when he was uh, 20 years old. Uh, Twain was five or six years older than that brother, Henry. Mm. Uh, and then he had an older brother and an older sister um, who, with whom he had extensive uh, correspondence. His uh, older sister, Pamela, was really the one in the family who guided him during uh, devotional time in, in the family. 
he grew up in a kind of a kind of mixed marriage, as many children do. Um, his mother was a Presbyterian and pretty devout, and took the kids to Sunday school and church. His father was a free thinker who really had nothing to do with church. Oh, okay. Both of them uh, impacted his uh, socialization yeah. um, and his worldview uh, understanding uh, over time. So, um, you know, he, he writes a fair amount about Presbyterian themes in his novels and short stories. And one of the arguments of my book is that uh, he misconstrues <laughs> What Presbyterianism was really teaching at the time, and <laughs> okay. a lot of scholars who uh, have written about him have also misunderstood. Uh, they've kind of accepted his version of what Presbyterianism entailed. Oh, that's something! Uh, without really looking carefully at what it really did teach at the time. Oh, that's 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 worth that's a distinction worth making for certain. Um, tell me about the death of his siblings, and I can only imagine that had a powerful. Uh, made a powerful impression on him in terms of what life was all about. Well, it did. Uh, It was very difficult, although it wasn't unusual to have children die in uh, their young years during the middle of the 19th century, uh, as his siblings did. Uh, But most traumatic was was the death of his younger brother, Henry, because he was the one who had, of course, one of the things that Twain did in life was serve as a steamboat pilot mm-hmm. on the Mississippi River, and he had convinced his brother to also uh, join in the steamboat trade. And he also had told his brother that if there's any kind of accident, you're responsible for making sure that the, the passengers are, are safe. Well, a steamboat exploded, and his brother was severely injured, but remembering Mark's counsel to him, he jumped back in the water and helped save a variety of other passengers. Wow. Uh, and as a result of that, would died a week later. And uh, Mark uh, kind of always blamed himself for the counsel that he gave to his brother and then his brother's death. Why did he uh, stop working on the steamboats? Uh... Well, essentially, um, he did it because of the Civil War. The war stopped the steamboat trade on the Mississippi. Okay. Um, and so there, you know, there was the battle for control of the of the Mississippi right. that led to Vicksburg and other major uh, naval battles along the uh, the path of the of the war. So he went. He decided he would try his hand out west. His brother Orion was already in Nevada, so he headed he headed out to Nevada, tried his hand at uh, silver mining. That didn't go well, and then got into the newspaper business and uh, later tried a little bit of gold prospecting in California. That didn't work either, and then ended up working for a variety of newspapers in both first Carson City, Virginia City, and then in San Francisco. He he Is uh, is he quickly considered a, a talented writer? Uh, yes, uh, by the newspapers for which he was working. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then he really hit the national spotlight in 1865 with his story about the uh, the celebrated jumping frog of Calaveras County that was published in a New York newspaper. And then things pretty much took off. He, he really became nationally known when he published Innocence Abroad uh, in 1868 based on his trip to uh, the Holy Land in Europe with a group of pilgrims who were exploring uh, both European Christianity and also conditions and life of Jesus in the Holy Land. And how did he treat the uh, 
you know, the the inevitable looking at relics, and I mean, how did he handle this bunch of Christians? Well, he, um, it was interesting because he was in a, he had always valued relationships with ministers, and when he was in both Nevada and California, he had a number of ministers who considered to be uh, quite close friends, and but he wasn't, and he attended church sporadically, mm-hmm. but he certainly wasn't professing to be a Christian at that point in mm-hmm. his life, and he had a lot of concerns and and questions about the Christian faith. But Innocence Abroad is actually pretty reverent in terms of its treatment of Christ, its okay. treatment, treatment of biblical miracles, its treatment of legitimate Holy Land sites. Sure. Uh, he's, he's very concerned about bogus sites that he thinks have been created as tourist traps. Right. Of course, we're talking about in the late 1860s, so yeah. the Holy Land is, is not very very developed yet at this point, but there are already pilgrims, obviously, going there. So from that standpoint, and then, of course, the group that he went with was essentially a church group, and they were having devotions every day on the ship and every day basically where they were, and uh, he participated rather reluctantly in the devotions mm-hmm. uh, while he was there. But you know, he he his book is is basically pretty positive toward um, the Christianity of his day. Mm-hmm. He has some problems with Catholicism in Europe at the time because mm-hmm. he thinks that it is uh, more oriented toward relics and yeah. Yeah. Um, liturgy that is not really reaching the heart of believers. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, he has some good things to say about the Dominican. Uh, Dominican missionaries, various places he encounters them. It's not all negative about, uh, certainly about Catholicism, but but he has some, have some problems with the great wealth of the, the Catholic Church, particularly in Italy, where they spend a good deal of time, and then the teeming poverty that he sees around them, and he thinks the Church should divest itself of some of its wealth and do more to take care of the poor. Yeah. Not not an unusual position, though. I mean, a lot of people no, would say that. No. Yeah, yeah. Um, how does he meet his wife? Is that after Innocence Abroad? Well, he meets her kind of indirectly through that trip because her brother uh, was a 18-year-old who his parents um, <clears throat> sent on the trip because they thought it would do him some spiritual good to go with this group of pilgrims and to see the Holy Land. And so he saw a a replica of her, and he was smitten from the first sight. Um, and he said, I've got to meet this woman. And so when he gets back to the States, he is, the meeting is arranged, and uh, he meets her, um, and she's 11 years younger than him. Okay. And her parents are very devout congregationalists living in Elmira, New York, very pillars of the church type of folks. And they're obviously concerned about this bohemian from the West who... <laughs> yeah doesn't seem to have any main means of supporting himself, who has a, a spotty moral track record at this point. So he's got to convince them that he's worthy of their daughter's hand. How does he do and, that? And uh, Well, he, he does it <laughs> in two ways, basically. Uh, one is by getting letters of reference from uh, people that knew him well in San Francisco, pastors, the Sunday school superintendent. But if you read the letters of recommendation, they're pretty mixed. Uh, in fact, the superintendent says, uh, I wouldn't let this man anywhere near my daughter if I had one at that, 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 that age. 
but nevertheless, uh, you know, he was he was charming. He was witty. Uh, he his personal relationship with the Langdons, uh, Livia, his future wife's parents, um, was very positive, and they took to him very much. And uh, it was a two year courtship. A lot of it helped, done through letters because he was out on tours speaking about innocence abroad and mm-hmm. doing a variety of other things. So he wasn't with her a whole lot. But it's really great for a historian because because they wrote all these letters, you can get a real sense of the issues yeah. that they're grappling with and the religious convictions that he has at the time. Very good. We'll come back and start exploring those in greater depth. My guest, Dr. Gary Scott Smith, he is the author of Mark Twain, Preacher, Prophet, and Social Philosopher. I'm Al Cresta. Much more to come. The best. 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 Of Cresta in the Afternoon Countdown. Number 28. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Gary Scott Smith. He's author, most recently, of Mark Twain, Preacher, Prophet, and Social Philosopher. We're taking a look at the religious life uh, and spiritual views of Mark Twain. When he marries Livy, uh, how long before they end up in Hartford, uh, where they have that almost, it, from documentary that I saw, made it sound like that was uh, just a, a beatific uh, a life there in Hartford. But how long before they get there? Yeah, it's only about a year between when they get married and when they okay. uh, end up in Hartford. They tried Buffalo first. He was a <clears throat> an editor of a newspaper his father-in-law bought him into, but uh, that they didn't have a very happy time in Buffalo, so they they moved to Hartford. And one of the reasons that they did was because um, Mark knew a, a pastor there named Joseph Twitchell, with whom he would have a close relationship his whole life and who was a very much a spiritual mentor okay. uh, slash confessor for him. Mm-hmm. But they also went there to be part of a, a particular community that was um, Nook Farm community that was kind of a a religious uh, a community of, of people of like-minded people of religious faith, mostly congregationalists, and uh, they 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 thought that would be a great place to raise their children, to uh, be bolstered in their faith. Uh, there were also a number of uh, literary connections in Hartford, so yeah. and they would end up staying there about twenty years until Mark ran into some major financial issues that led him to go to Europe for most of the last decade of the of the 19th century. Okay. Uh, does he, uh, the, the spiritual influences around him at that time, are they, uh, how, where would they line up in the spectrum of Protestant opinions? Would this be liberal Protestant Christianity at that time? Would it be more evangelical, yeah, most, most, or whatever the language was? Yeah, most of it would be liberal Protestantism mm-hmm. connected with um, congregationalism. Not all congregationalists were theological liberals, but the ones in Hartford generally were. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a movement in the late 19th, early 20th century called the Social Gospel yeah. Yeah. that was involved with trying to apply Christian faith to a wide array of social problems and issues. And he he very much identified with that particular movement because he was very concerned about social issues his entire life. And that's mm-hmm. something I talk about a good deal in the book is his, uh, his, his views on various social issues, hence the... Uh, the prophet uh, 
angle of the title. Does he ground his social positions in a, a broadly Christian worldview? Um, yes and no. Um, he definitely was very much influenced by some of the social gospel folks of the time, um, Horace Bushnell mm-hmm. uh, and Joseph Twitchell and, and a few others that he knew. Um, and, and yes, to some degree he does. I mean, he, he, he often refers to uh, God, God as a just God um, and the Bible as a basis for critiquing various things that were going on in his society, including war and imperialism, um, treatment of African Americans, treatment of women, um, things of that sort. Of course, he was very much an opponent of the Boer War and then later the the putting down of the Filipino resurrection, um, insurrection, I should say, mm-hmm. um, after the Spanish-American War or in connection with it. So, yeah, I would say that it, it, it's grounded to some degree in, in Christian uh, faith and mm-hmm. scripture, um, but I, there were a variety of other influences upon him. Um, I, he was influenced certainly by Unitarianism, Universalism, um, to some degree by Transcendentalism. Okay. Um, so it's it's an it's an eclectic mix. Yeah, yeah. He he has a drive for social respectability, doesn't he? He does. How and, does that sit course, with his social gospel in, instincts? Well, it's interesting. You know, he, here's a guy who who doesn't go to college. Uh, in fact, who drops out of school when his father uh, dies at tw- age twelve. So when Mark Twain's age twelve, his father dies, and he drops out of school and helps to support the family through various printing enterprises. Um, he's very well-read, but he's not particularly well-educated. Mm. Um, and so there's always this concern about respectability because, again, most American authors are college-educated and and schooled in the classics and, right. and right. just have a, a broader educational experience and background than he does. But he makes up for it, I think, by extensive travel. Uh, by, again, re- reading widely in, in the literature of his day. Um, and, of course, he's just a brilliant man, with <laughs> an incredible, yeah. incredibly astute insight into human nature and uh, the human condition. So, but, again, he, he identifies with, with the poor, the, the least of these, the downtrodden, the, the vulnerable, and he does that throughout much of his life. Okay. Uh, he would he would preach, he, he would lead music in... in uh, in various uh, rescue missions where Twitchell would go to preach. He sponsored scholarships for African-Americans at college and seminary. Um, he, did, he did a wide variety of things to reach out to the, the less fortunate in American society. So let me jump then, and I know there's so much material we could go over. Let me jump to the question I'm sure many listeners are concerned about. How does he become then a, a tool in the hands of uh, modern atheism? Well, essentially, the way that they do that is they read his, his autobiography, which he's writing in the last decade of his life. And much of this is not for, in fact, almost all of it's not for public consumption, um, doesn't, isn't published until after his death. Oh. Uh, he, he keeps his most um, heterodox, um, unorthodox views um, from the public because a Libby didn't want it put out there. Uh, he comes a little bit more open about after the, her death during the last six years of his life. Um, but he also knows that it, this is still a very religious time in American history and that 
very few people are publicly challenging Christian doctrine and Christian perspectives, Robert Ingersoll perhaps being a leading example. But he knows it will hurt his sales and hurt, hurt his reputation in some ways, so he keeps this rather closeted. So there are certainly things that he says that question uh, certainly the biblical conception of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he struggles all his life with the the question of theodicy, you yeah. know, how can a, a ch- uh, all-powerful, all-loving God permit uh, the evils that are in the world? And yeah. he never seems to accept the rather uh, straightforward answer that a lot of theologians gave, that uh, there's this whole concept of free agency, that right. God has permitted humans to make decisions on their own, and that has brought sin into the world and, and keeps sin functioning. Yeah. But, yeah, so the, certainly you can take statements from Twain, um, toward the end of his life, he talks about the real God, um, the true God as being somewhat different, a conception uh, from the biblical God, and it's basically a God that he has invented that satisfies his notions of justice and mm-hmm. righteousness and all those kinds of things. Does he, in, in, your, in your read of him, does he have a settled religious perspective or or? Does he ever settle into uh, uh, what you might call a, a coherent set of doctrines? Well, I would say briefly he does when he's courting Livy, and maybe early on into their marriage, first two or three years of their marriage. And at that point, he seems to be have embraced Christianity, uh, come to faith gradually through uh, reading Scripture and being exposed to um Christians in his life. Uh, he had, during his life, a number of said minister friends and family members and Libby and her folks and other Christians in his life who are obviously trying to keep him in the fold and, and help him understand the Christian faith. But um, that seems to be only a temporary part of his life. Mm-hmm. He seems, as time goes on, to become more skeptical, more questioning, but there's a period of about five years where you, if you looked at him during that period of time, you would say, yeah, he's pretty much embraced the Christian worldview. He pretty much accepts it uh, pretty pretty faithfully. But then things change over time. And there, there are three basic theories about what he what he did. Some say that it was a total totally bogus. He just did it to impress Livy and her parents, and he never really believed it. Other people say that he was genuinely self-deluded, and he really thought that he had accepted Christianity when, in fact, he hadn't. And then a third group, of which I would put myself a member, mm-hmm. say that, yeah, he did He did really seem to have accepted Christianity uh, faithfully for a period of about five years, and then doubts creep in, and he gradually uh, rejects a good deal of it. Is there any indication towards the end of his life that he is repentant of uh, certain opinions, or is it pretty much a slide away from theism? Well, I I, I wouldn't say from theism, but I would say from Christianity. Okay. Um, Yeah, it's really, as I try to talk about in the book, it's complicated, it's convoluted, um, he's very inconsistent, um, he's up and down in terms of what he believes, uh, you can take any issue, whether it's the divinity of Christ or whether it's whether there's an afterlife or not, and you can look at different sides of what he said, and you could you could interpret him in different ways at different periods of time. But the general progression would be toward greater skepticism as he yeah. nears in decade by decade. Yeah, essentially. That's, that's what I thought. Okay, here here's one for you. 
Why is he so fascinated with Joan of Arc? Yeah, that's that's one that um, <laughs> literary <laughs> scholars, historians, theologians, nobody can really figure that out. So in the 1890s, he's in one of the more skeptical periods of his life. He is, his prized uh, daughter has died at age 24. Oh, yes, that's um, terrible. He's going through health problems. Livy's going through health problems. They've got financial problems. They're having to live abroad to make ends meet. And he's writing all kinds of skeptical things about Christianity. And then he writes this book about Joan of Arc, which he says is his favorite book. <laughs> takes him 12 years to write. He says, you know, most of my other books I kind of churned out very quickly, but this one I had to do all kinds of research and archives. And it's almost hagiography. I mean, he basically loves Joan, and he, he prizes her, and he doesn't question her, her sense of divine calling. He thinks that she's legitimate. He thinks that she's uh, a saint. Um, he he's just enamored of her. It's it's just remarkable, and no one can quite figure out exactly how this fits with everything else with the, that's going on in his life. Yeah, no, I, that's why I was. That's why I asked. It just seems to be counter to the direction he's going. All of a sudden, there's this, there's this, uh, this artifact, <laughs> this fascination with right, Joan of Arc. Right. It's 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 totally incongruous. It's inexplicable. Yeah, yeah. How did he, by the way, how did he get interested in her? What, what, what was the trigger? Well, apparently, uh, as a young, as a teenager, he encountered her work for the first, or work about her for the first time. And then he just, over time, he, he kind of saw Livy as a, a modern day Joan of Arc. He often compared his wife to Joan. Oh. Um, and that just led him into more desire to explore her life. And yeah. again, I don't think there's a coherent explanation for why he devotes so much of his uh, writing time and intellectual energy to her life. But uh, so, the, but there there are various things that happen that push him in that direction. Yeah. Okay. Well, it, it's a fascinating life, and. Uh, uh, do you think he is America's uh, the, the, the premier uh, writer? Well, I'm not a literary scholar, and so my opinion here is that of a lay person. Okay. Uh, but certainly I think that there's no one in the late 19th century, early 20th century, who can hold a candle to Mark Twain. Yeah. And I think that was the general impression of people uh, during that time period. Yeah. If you look at the whole of American history, yeah, he's got contenders at different times. Well, let me tell you, Gary, thank you so much again. And again, fascinating uh, book, and I look forward to talking to you in the future. Jackie Robinson probably be our next topic, huh? Well, that would be great. I really appreciate you having me on, Alan. I look forward to talking about Jackie someday. Very good. Gary Scott Smith, again, Mark Twain, preacher, prophet, and social philosopher.